We're in a little series called Envy Rivalry and, um, and the Roots of Violence. So, and I'm just checking my, my fly here. Uh, everything's good. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll mention later why, why that, I would even say that. But um, um, a little bit of review for this, for this series. And, you know, it's summertime, so I know people are in and out in terms of church. But um, so first we spent some time in the series uh, on the hidden role of imitative desire as a um, fueling power for uh, escalating violence in human society. So the idea is that we imitate each other, no news there, uh, and that's really though the key to our success. Neurologically it's like what sets us apart is our incredible capacity for imitation. Um, think about children, how children learn complex language. I mean, a, a child could learn like three languages simultaneously simply by imitating the people around them. And a child imitating is completely unconscious of imitating. It's just like an automatic process that happens. They're not even aware of it going on. They're not like trying to imitate people to learn language. Um, so our imitation is like that. It's, it's unselfconscious and it's largely automatic. But the thing is, and this is the insight of Rene Girard who's been informing our series. I think Emily gave a little bit more background about that a couple of weeks ago. We don't just imitate external gestures and behavior. Our, our imitation capacity is so advanced as human beings that we have the capacity to imitate like intentions of other people and the desires of other people. And our desires actually are largely imitative. We're imitating the desire of someone else when we want something often. So this sets up like intense rivalries in human society, right? Where there's all this kind of imitative desire going on, it's going to set up a huge capacity for rivalry and rivalry leads to conflict and if we're highly imitative in the first place then we're going to imitate each other's aggression right without even knowing it thinking we're so different from the other person but in imitating their aggression toward us with aggression toward them we're only becoming more like our rival oh gosh we're, we're oblivious to this whole dynamic Early human groups um, survived the tendency for violence to spiral out of control without the, you know, the modern mechanisms of a police force and, you know, court of law, laws and all that sort of thing. Um, early groups survived the tendency for violence to spiral out of control through a mechanism that is now called scapegoating. Scapegoating has to be understood first and foremost as a survival mechanism for communities that are threatened by escalating internal conflicts. It works by channeling all these many conflicts of the many against the many to one conflict of the many against the few or the one. So nothing is as unifying, right? We'll, we'll, we'll be seeing it in our, in our Republican and Democratic conventions. Nothing is so unifying as a common enemy. So Rene Girard, who developed the scapegoat theory, says actually this is the foundation of human society. 
This is the foundation of religion, culture, it's, it, the, the whole works. This is central to human society, the scapegoat mechanism. Without the scapegoat mechanism functioning, humans would have killed each other off long ago and gone extinct. And in fact, um, you know, anthropologists through genetic studies have determined that we are all, everyone on planet Earth is related to a population that had shrunk to the size of 2,000 individuals in the lower lower uh, edge of, of South Africa, today South Africa. We're all related to that very small community because there had been a lot of extinction going on, probably people killing one another off. The ones who survived are the ones who discovered this mechanism and were, were, were wired to replicate it. So again, a scapegoat is an innocent victim thought to be guilty by the crowd. But scapegoat only, only works when the innocence of the victim is hidden. When the innocence of the victim is hidden. When the crowd assumes the guilt of the person who has been designated as the source of the community ills. Um, so we said uh, a few weeks ago that there are many similarities between the stories of the Bible and surrounding ancient myths. Now, this is something that's been discovered like in the last hundred years, you know, Frazier's The Golden Bow and put, pulling all these parallels between ancient myths and various stories in the Bible, well documented. But there's one striking difference that Rene Girard pointed out, and that's in the ancient myth, the guilt of the person or the group killed or excluded to found the city or to bring peace was always assumed. The guilt was always assumed. And the original audiences for those myths would have already assumed the guilt of that person who was sent away or killed or whatever, bringing peace to the community. The person got what he deserved. This is in the Oedipus myth. I saw, I saw the myth of Oedipus um, by Sophocles at, uh, at Hope College recently, and it was, it was really, really striking. Oedipus was the cause of the plague in Thebes because he was understood to have killed his father and slept with his mother, so he was driven out and the plague stopped. And everyone believed it. And at the, at the, the, the way the play ends is that he just sent out and everyone is gathered around him believing in his guilt and you as the audience are clapping along with the scapegoating mob and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm participating in this thing right here in the play. So the gift of the Jews to humanity is the unmasking of the scapegoat mechanism. So for the first time in history, the people killed or exclude it, whether it's Abel in the Abel and Cain story in Genesis, or Joseph uh, sent into slavery by his brothers, the people who get the right end of the stick are understood to be innocent. Like we take that for granted because we've been, you know, the Bible's been part of Western culture for so long, but it was entirely new in the realm of ancient writings. Uh, Emily, of course, is the one who put me onto this. She studied Gerard in, um, at uh, Fuller Seminary many years ago. Um, and Emily next week is going to show how the death and resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of the unmasking of the scapegoat mechanism uh, designed to actually bring it to an end is actually in the process of, you know, that's unfolding in history as we, as we watch. This is being unmasked. 
more and more people see, oh, people are being scapegoated. That, didn't, that wasn't part of early human cultures. But as we learn how the scapegoating um, works, and it was just really interesting to hear Martha's story of just having that scapegoating experience at work. It's, it happens all over, all the time. Um, today I want to point out what I think the main takeaway for us is in these stories that come to us in the Bible, and these records of events. It's not, the takeaway is not what you might think, which is, oh Lord, see how I've been scapegoated. I mean, that's actually quite helpful if you have been scapegoated or you're the victim of scapegoating to realize, you know, after you kind of check yourself and say, am I doing anything to elicit this? To realize, oh, I'm actually being scapegoated and there's a phenomenon that happens and that's what's going on. It, it, it keeps you from going crazy. So that's very, very helpful, but it's not the end of the revelation of the unmasking of scapegoating. The end is to realize that we are all the kind of people who easily and unwittingly participate in scapegoating mobs. It's just the easiest thing in the world for people like us. In the New Testament, there are two like conversion stories that are featured. Um, like more is told about the inner dynamics of these people coming to faith in Jesus and having that encounter with Jesus uh, turn their entire lives around. And the two figures are Peter, the lead apostle of the band of 12 apostles, and Paul, the Pharisee who later came to faith in Jesus after persecuting the the early church. They are stories, the conversion stories that are featured in the Bible are the stories of recovering scapegoaters, not just the stories of people who were scapegoated. So today we're going to take a look at Peter. I think we might, might do this in two parts, but we'll, we'll start with Peter today. I want to set the stage. We'll be looking at John chapter 18. If you've got your smartphone, want to pull up uh, John 18, or if you have one of these old things that I think they call a book? Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like that. Um, back in the day, we called that the Bible. Um, you can turn to John chapter 18. Um, so, in the Gospels, remember, Israel, the time that the Gospels are dealing with, you know, the, um, you know Jesus was born in 6 BC, which is, he, he arrived six years ahead of schedule. Uh, and, uh, you know, he died in whatever, 24 AD or so, give or take. In the Gospels, in this period, um, Israel was in a state of escalating rivalry and escalating violence. I mean, it was on the verge of just chaotic outbreak of violence um, for an extended period of time. Um, the people of Israel were not just in rivalry with their Roman occupiers, which you could expect, but they were also in intense rivalry with one another. Israel was like a collection of factions that were, that were in rivalry with each other. So the Zealots versus the Moderates and the Sadducees versus the, the Pharisees and the Peasants versus the Aristocracy. It was just in the air. The disciples of Jesus, who you would think had, would have had like, you know, a shot at not having rivalry. They were, they were riddled with rivalry within themselves. They were in rivalry with Jesus. They were in rivalry with one another. It was just a madhouse. 
All these internal conflicts, as the gospel record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John unfolds, you can see the intensification of the conflict and the rivalries. When's it going to break? What's going to happen? And just about all these conflicts are about to trigger the scapegoat mechanism. In, in about the middle of the Gospels, it, it's like, okay, it's the turning point. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to the ruling council that was trying to decide about what to do about Jesus, he said, because they were arguing, there were people who thought he was guilty, people who thought he was innocent, people thought we ought to jump on the Jesus bandwagon, you know, tr- people were trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. He's a big factor. Rome is getting annoyed by Jesus. That affects us. What are we going to do? He said, don't you guys realize that it's better for one man to suffer than for the whole nation to perish? It's like, look, the Romans are nervous about messianic movements. And this is like the biggest messianic movement to come along. And there's things that we don't really like about this particular messianic movement, like we're not in charge. And, And we can leverage this for the sake of the nation if we just cooperate with Rome in the case of Jesus. It's, it's actually in the nation's best interests. It's our responsibility as the shepherds of this nation to go along with this process. Leaders often go along with scapegoating for what seems a noble reason to, um, to preserve the institutions that they lead. You know, and I think we probably might have seen a little bit of this in Martha's story of like, you know, if we deal with the situation, it's just going to make it worse for, for all of us and we just don't want to go there. So let's just, you know, let's just keep this under wraps for a while. It's, it's not me to interpret that situation. That may be completely unfair, but uh, situations like that, that might be a, uh, what's going on. So in John chapter 18, we find Peter and another disciple, um, did I say chapter 18, uh, we find Peter and another disciple tagging along um, to follow Jesus at, at the critical moment when the scapegoating mechanism is kicking in. He's been arrested by the temple guard, and he's been taken to Annas, who's the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas, for like the the initial interrogation about what to do with him. And nobody knows what's going to happen. John and Peter follow him, and we read the account in uh, John chapter 18. I'm going to start with verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest... This disciple was probably John, who was of the priestly class. Um, He went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. Now the slaves... And the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. This, in chapter 18, is the first of his three famous denials of Jesus. So, let's get the context. Peter is a good guy. He's actually, compared to the other disciples who have all fled to save their skin, he's showing a little moxie. He's, he, with John, he's going and following Jesus closer and closer to the authorities that are upset about the Jesus movement. 
I mean, he's frightened, he's cold, and he's tired. It's been a bad, bad stretch, a bad week and a bad night. It's a brave thing that Peter's doing. He's getting this close to the authorities that arrested Jesus, and he knows that he is, if anyone, he's like the chief accomplice to Jesus from the Roman perspective. So he's taking a big risk. And yet, standing around the fire to warm himself with the interrogation going on not far away inside, he denies knowing Jesus when he's recognized by the woman. He doesn't say, this man is innocent of these trumped up charges. He says, you're crazy, woman. I got nothing to do with this man. He distances himself from Jesus who is being scapegoated. So how does scapegoating work? Well, in order for a community to transfer its internal conflicts, which are multiplying and all over the place, to a single scapegoat or a scapegoat group, you first need like a small faction of the community, not many, accusing an individual or group as the source of the community's uh, ills. Like these are the people that are causing us the problem. But you also need, and without this second group, scapegoating won't work, you also need many more people to passively go along with the accusers, either by remaining silent or by distancing themselves from the scapegoated individual or group. So Peter's denial, actually, is entirely predictable and understandable. It's entirely predictable and understandable. And that would, actually, it was his courage that got him into the position where he had the opportunity to deny Jesus. That picture of Peter joining uh, the, the police and the, some of the slaves around the fire at night. This was taking place at night in, the, in Israel at this time of the Passover. It would have been chilly nights. What a picture, isn't it, of community? Like, that's our picture of community, sitting around a campfire in a circle, right? It's, the fire represents just like our basic human need for the warmth and acceptance and the approval of our, of our homeboys, of our group, of our community. And so when our community that we depend on for our warmth and our survival turns against an innocent victim, and becomes a majority mob, a crowd, now a scapegoating community, doing what communities with multiplying rivalries and conflicts always do in order to survive, to, to, to trade off a little bit of violence against a few for multiplying violence against the many. When that mechanism kicks in, the power of what's going on in the group pulls us and like hypnotizes us and intoxicates us and the desire of the crowd becomes our desire mimetically through imitation we get we'd say swept along you know I, I grew up in um, Detroit in the 1950s and 1960s southeastern Michigan is still the most racially segregated sec section of the of the country. The city of Detroit in the 1950s and 60s was extremely segregated. Uh, compared to my white friends, 
all my friends and neighbors were white. Uh, I was racially, I was like the racially enlightened one. Uh, my d dad was raised in Lily White Dearborn in the pre-war era. If you know anything about Dearborn in the pre-war era, that was like the most racist city in, in the country blatantly, overtly racist. And my dad, who went to Dearborn High, was a member of the NAACP. I came home from first grade using the N-word, and my mother just rebuked me so sharply. It's actually the only sharp rebuke from my mother that I can remember. The only one. We do not use that language in this family. But I grew up surrounded by people, my peers and others, who told jokes about the Japs, the Wops, the Krauts, the Spicks, and the Coloreds. I mean, it was everywhere. It's, it's actually hard for younger people to understand how, just, how blatant the racism was just a, a few decades ago. Everywhere. My first father-in-law was a man of his time. Um, he told racist jokes, like so many people did in that time. I did not have an auspicious beginning with my late wife Nancy's family. We got married at 18 for the usual reason. I did not want to further rock the boat with Stan. When my father-in-law told one of these jokes, what was I supposed to do as an 18-year-old? Was I supposed to say, Stan? I do not want to hear those jokes. Actually, yes. That was what I was supposed to do. What did I do instead? I really did not want to spend my shred of equity on that issue. And so, I kept my mouth shut. I deflected at times. I pretended not to hear at times. I, I would fake not getting the joke and have him explain it so it would just like dissipate. There were probably times when I faked a chuckle, ashamed of myself while I did. My mother's voice ringing in my ears. We do not use that word in this house. Eventually, thankfully, Nancy and I got up the gumption to say, San, stop it. Stop it. You, you can't do that. Stop it. And, and he did. It was amazing. He did. It, but it took some time. Now, why did I do that? Why did I do that against my own values and upbringing? Because I was like Peter, led into the courtyard, frightened, insecure, warming myself by the fire and wanting to be part of that group around the fire because it was safe. We are wired to seek the approval and acceptance of the circle gathered around the fire, and sometimes we will do anything to get it. If that means being silent, we'll be silent. If that means distancing ourselves from the scapegoats, we'll do it, especially if we're cold enough and frightened enough and tired enough, we'll do it. I mean, how many times have you missed the opportunity to take a stand, right? And then afterwards thought, oh, what a coward, you know. I mean, those moments come, they come 
by surprise. You, you know, you know, like you don't wake up and say, you know what, at 2.30 today, I bet I'm going to have an opportunity to take a stand, you know. Um, it, no, it always, it always takes you by surprise. You're confused by what's going on. The moment passes and you don't take the stand. We all do that. You know, uh, just as a side note, since I use the example of growing up in Detroit, you know, for Americans of uh, European ancestry, as most of the people I see in the room are, it really does not reassure our African-American brothers and sisters to say, I am not a racist. That does not, like, engender trust in our African-American brothers and sisters. You may say that, thinking, oh, this is my bridge to my African mother. I want you to know I'm safe. I'm not a racist. You do it with the best of intentions. It's like the worst thing you can possibly say. Because if, you're, if you experience racism day in, day out, every day of your life, and your mother and father did, and your grandparents did, you understand what racism is. Racism is like a toxin in our cultural water supply. You know, every human being has trace amounts of PCBs in their bloodstream from plastic in the water, in the oceans, in the lakes, including children in the womb have trace amounts of PCBs in their bloodstream. Racism is a toxin like that in our bloodstream. So we, we, you, if you're a white person, you can't say, I, I am not a racist. All you can say with integrity is, I want to be free of racism. God helping me. I'm committed to that project. End of my side note. Um, so, Rene Girard talks a lot about a kind of crowd contagion that takes over when a group of people unconsciously project its many internal conflicts onto a single victim or minority group in order to put the brakes on intensifying rivalries within the group. Notice I'm repeating this mechanism over and over so we can get it in the connections. Um, Gerard describes this phase of the scapegoating crisis as, as it's kind of like a hypnotic thing takes over. There's a hypnotic effect. Our familiar term for that hypnotic effect is, is well, like um, mob mentality or crowd mentality. People in groups can become either kinder or meaner and they can turn on a dime depending on like what's mimetically flowing through crowds of people. It's, it's amazing how it works. Have you, just a small example, have you ever found yourself laughing in a group of people and someone whispers in your ear, you know, what was just said? What was so funny? I mean, I had... I had um, hearing loss and that I, I didn't realize and so like in the last few years I, I, I had this experience many times standing in a group you know I like to be part of the laughter I like to provoke the laughter if possible you know people are laughing I'm laughing someone turns to me and says what, what, what's everyone laughing about and I'm, I, I feel so awkward I feel like I'm busted you know I don't want to say well I'm just laughing because everyone else is laughing but I don't know I don't know what's funny I want to say, no, I, that, someone said it's an incredibly funny thing. Let me explain it to you. Wasn't that funny? I can recognize humor and then I can laugh. I'm so socially skilled. And I just say, oh, I, I don't know. I'm just laughing because everybody else is laughing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We unconsciously, we automatically imitate others and things spread through groups this way. 
So if Peter, who loved Jesus as much as he did, you know, who left his fishing business and he left his family uh, temporarily to follow Jesus, if Peter could be affected in this way, be on the outer edges of the scapegoating mob in effect, well, hello, <laughs> welcome to the human race. This is, this is us. We are the sort of people who are entirely capable of participating in scapegoating. If only by our stance, uh, silence, if only by our like migration to the edge of the crowd when it's going on, pretending what's going on is not really going on, maybe hiding it even from ourselves. And guess what? We are loved by God being these sorts of people. We are loved by God being these sorts of people. And when I say I love by God, I want to include the term like. We are liked by God. Even when him fully knowing that we are these kinds of people, he likes us. He wants to get close to us. He's looking for our company. The words Jesus said to God understood as his Abba Father about us, knowing this about us, were not, look at these cowards. The words that Jesus said to God about us were, Father, forgive them. They do not have a clue what they're doing. <laughs> they don't have a clue what they're doing. We are never more ignorant about what we are actually doing than when we are swept into the hypnotic contagion of a crowd that is resolving its internal tensions by scapegoating someone or by some group. I mean, that is the, that is the most natural thing to be ignorant of in the human condition. So take heart. Because ignorance can be corrected. It's like one of the easiest things to correct. All it takes is a little light. And Jesus is actually, the risen Jesus now, like his mission, his life, is going around turning lights on in our hearts, one little light switch at a time. So for our couple of minutes of silent reflection, I want to work with this, uh, work with this image. Um, turning on a light switch is easy. Finding it sometimes can be hard. <laughs> you know? If you're, you know, imagine yourself, you had a bad night, you know, you drank too much, you know, you, somebody took you home, you know, and, and you're sleeping in someone's, you know, bedroom with shaded, you can't, there's not a, there's not a whiff of light coming in there. You wake up and you want to turn on the light. You don't have a, it's easy to turn the light switch on. It's sometimes hard to find it. And that's especially true of our blind spots. You know, like the blind spots, by definition, we are blind to. Like the only reason we think that we have blind spots is theoretically because we know, if we're smart, that a lot of other people, in fact, everybody else I know uh, up close and personal has a blind spot. I can tell you pretty much what they are, you know. Like, we're really good at spotting other people's blind spots, but by definition, we cannot spot our own blind spots. How, how many do we have? We don't have a clue. Think about each of your blind spots as like that room that you wake up in, and it's pitch dark, and you've never been in there before. You open your eyes, only you can't see a thing, and you need to switch the light on. What do you do? 
you, you know, you're, you're in a pickle. Wouldn't it be great if someone would come into the room and turn the light on for you? And this is, this is like what God is for. This is what the Holy Spirit's job in, is in our life. So, no, in this two minutes. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take a while to explain this. You thought I was done, but this is like the important like, psychological part of how we process this kind of thing. Um, if you look at Peter uh, from a literary point of view, uh, what is um, Peter's like literary function or role in the Gospels? Um, our liter- literary uh, people... He's a foil, right? He's the guy we laugh at. Peter is a comic figure. I mean, preachers have made a living on this for, for millennia, you know, taking stories of Peter and pointing out the humor. Like, what a comic figure Peter is. He's, he's just ridiculous. But he's very serious about what's going on with him in the time, right? But we watching him, we say, this is hilarious how he's acting. So um, this morning I was... I was late. Usually I get here about 10 15, but I was on sabbatical for three months, and then I came back for a few weeks, and then I was gone for another week. And for some reason, I got up at like, I don't know, 6 15 this morning. I was working on the final polishing up of the sermon, and I just, you know, quickly thought to myself, oh, the service starts at 11 o'clock, you know, and I, like, I need to be there at 11 o'clock. But I'm usually here at 10 15. So I'm just. I'm even thinking to myself, you know, Julia had to go off to her service in Farmington Hills at 9.30. She got up even earlier than I. I like my new situation. We don't have to go to church till 11 o'clock. This is great. And I had an extra cup of coffee, and I worked a little bit more on the sermon, and I printed out it again, and then I looked, it's 10.30. And I'm like, I haven't showered. I haven't, you know, I haven't changed the batteries in my hearing devices like I need to do on Sunday in case they go off, and, you know. And I, then I just went into this crazy rushing around mode. I mean, oh my gosh. If you'd been watching me, it would have been hysterical. I guarantee you, it would have been hysterical. But when you're in that kind of a frenzy, you think, oh, oh, I'm beating myself up. How stupid. I've been doing this for so many years. How could I be late to church on Sunday? It's my job. It's like the highlight of my job. We've got all these people who are coming early, volunteers setting up, staff people coming earlier, and I'm the idiot who doesn't come on time. What's wrong with me? I'm so earnest and serious, just like Peter. But anyone else who's watching me is just laughing at me. Maturity. It's not just doubling down and being serious with yourself in those moments. Maturity is learning to laugh at yourself in those moments. Maturity for Peter is to watch himself go on a little Peter thing that gets into the Gospels and notice the people who love him laughing at him. Not like derisively, but oh, there's Peter. We love him. Isn't he awesome? You know. And then learning to laugh at yourself in the same way. Because if you're serious, if you're rushing around, you know, you can't find the batteries. You can't put them into your hearing device. You know, you, you can't remember, oh, you got to bring your Bible in addition to your notes. You can't realize, oh, it's these set of notes, not some other set of notes, because you're, you're all doubled down and your brain's not working. But if you can just stop in the middle of it and go, this is hilarious. <laughs> this is hilarious. I wish I had a crowd to just see how funny this was. 
Then you relax, and then you find your Bible, and you find those little batteries, and you can put them in, and you actually get here um, just in time. I want to suggest that um, psychological posture toward yourself in the next couple of minutes of quiet reflection, where you just say, you know, God, I know theoretically I must have some blind spots. Maybe they're in this area. Maybe this is, they're in another. Um, wouldn't it be fun over the next week or, or month or so if you would just like sneak into one of my blind spot rooms and turn the light on? Turn it on with the dimmer switch, though, you know, so it'd be like just, just like a candle at first, and then, you know, it'd be like, oh, oh, let me see more, and then it would just go up a little bit, you know. You, you're not going to have time to have the light turned on in two minutes of, of reflection time, but if you just say, you know, God, wouldn't it be fun for the next week or two or month, you would just come in and turn the light on in one of my blind spots, and so... Having made that prayer, you'll be more likely to be alert for it happening when it does happen in the next week or two or month, okay? That's our task. So take a deep breath, relax, enjoy the next minute or so, and uh, we'll move on. I'll sit down and let you know when our time is up. Alrighty, we're going to have our offering now. As Derek